You're listening to 3CR Breakfast Summer Programming. During the year, we heard from so many incredible voices. Tune in to hear our top picks from 2022. Join us on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Today's show features a selection of interviews on disability justice and the Disability Royal Commission. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. And now we are joined by Catherine McAlpine, who is the CEO of Inclusion Australia, the peak national organisation for people with intellectual disabilities and their families. And she joins us today to speak on the labour exploitation of people with a disability and the Disability Royal Commission. Thanks so much for joining me today, Catherine. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks uh, also for getting up <laughs> early, because I know that is not always easy. It's definitely not easy for me. Um, but yeah, how about we jump right in? Because I know uh, the Disability Royal Commission is actually currently holding a three-day hearing into Australian disability enterprises. And one of the inquiries showed that people with a disability were being paid as low as $2.27 an hour. And wages were also reported to be calculated with an assessment tool to measure the quote-unquote productivity of employees. Now, I know this is only one case of labour exploitation, but it is an ongoing violent trend towards people with a disability. Um, I wonder if you maybe wouldn't mind speaking on how labour exploitation for people with a disability occurs, particularly intellectual disabilities? Yeah, it's a a really big issue, isn't it? Yep. (laughs) Um, Really, it happens because we've got structural segregation of people with an intellectual disability from childhood in Australia. Like, people don't really think about it, but the fact that we um, assume, and in fact it happens, that, you know, up to sort of 50% of of young children with intellectual disability go to a separate school setting means that people are not brought up with people with intellectual disability. They don't really know them. And if they do, they don't really, you know, might feel nervous or, or... unsure of of how to communicate with people well or any of the things. But what happens in effect is that people are segregated from a very young age. And so by the time we get to adulthood and we are looking at employment, people have not had colleagues, have not had classmates with intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. They haven't learnt that people with intellectual disability really are the same as them, you know, want all the same things, someone to, you know, someone to love, somewhere to live, productive job, you know, want to contribute. And so it doesn't occur to them that that things might be different. So we we have this sort of really structural thing. We You may have heard us talk about the polished pathway. So Mm -hmm. we talk about a polished pathway to say particularly people in special school, but for people with intellectual disability, all the systems have been smoothed out for people to go into an ADE setting, an Australian Disability Enterprise setting, but there are lots and lots of barriers to go to open employment. And so we just see that the situation perpetuates, you know, on an ongoing basis. 
Yep, absolutely. And I know also uh, recently there has been a new disability strategy from like 2021 to 2031, I believe. And there's an actual employee targeted action plan. And I feel like a lot of the ideas lend to, you know, a lot of neoliberal kind of let's get everybody up into the workforce. And the underlying assumption is that, you know, intellectual people with intellectual disabilities don't want to work or can't work. But actually, it is like systemic barriers that are continuously stopping them from working and perpetuating further harm. Um, And yeah, as you said, they are just like us, and they want the same things. And it is a disabling environment. um, And accommodations can't be fixed, they have to be flexible. And I also know that, you know, negative and harmful employee attitudes uh, towards like false notions of what capability means, reliability and social cohesion of people with a disability. Um, Could you maybe also speak on maybe why employers share this stigma and I guess only appear to really value life in terms of productivity and human capital? It's just just amazing and it's a a really interesting thing that there's an assumption that people with intellectual disability aren't productive. Yeah. And there's no comment, um, but even if you talk about productivity, there's no sort of understanding that if you, um, sorry, I'll just go back and say, Australian disability enterprises are geographical. Yeah. So they sort of spread out around, along, around the country. So if you're a person with intellectual disability, what happens is that you um, manifestly, you're, you're given what's called manifest eligibility to the disability support pension. Mm-hmm. Now, that in itself is a good thing in terms of it is true that people with an intellectual disability should have to jump, shouldn't have to jump through as many hoops to get the disability support pension. Yeah. Like we know that intellectual disability is a lifelong condition. So we're not looking to make things more difficult for people to access the disability support pension. However, intellectual disability are automatically, automatically given a job capacity assessment of less than eight hours a week. And because of the complex way that our systems work, it means that the only disability support they're offered is an ADE. So they're not sent to disability employment services to get support, to get an open, a job in open employment. And then you go off to your local ADE. So it doesn't matter what your skills and interests are. Like the rest of us get jobs based on our skills and interests of training and, and all the rest of it. You go to your local ADE. So if your local ADE does horticulture, then you do horticulture. If your local ADE does packing, you do packing. You know, you just, you're, you're just given a job in the local ADE. There's no matching. And what we do know in best practice for people with an intellectual disability is job customization, which means that a job is customized to the skills and interests of the person. People are very effective employees. So on the one hand, the productivity thing is um, disingenuous anyway to talk about um, to talk about it when people with intellectual disability are their pathway to employment is completely different to everyone else's. But on the other hand, um, yes, this thing about not valuing people. Australia is a rich, a rich country, and um, we continually continue to say it's okay for this one small group in the population to be paid, as you say, less than $2.50 an hour. Yeah. Um, and and we're told that that's okay, you know, that people accept that that's a reasonable thing when that sort of income just keeps people in poverty forever. Yeah, absolutely. It's also uh, so ironic, <laughs> given what you've just said, that the NDIS, um, you know, definitely champions and a lot of disability services champion choice and control and personalisation, but 
you know, even the recent reforms into the NDIS mean that the free market is um, competitive and makes services more difficult to get. And, you know, disabilities do vary. And also understanding that a lot of, you know, intellectual disabilities um, or people with intellectual disabilities, sorry, often are highly stigmatized against. And I feel like those attitudes permeate not just through employment, but um, yeah, throughout so many aspects of life and without being able to address all of those together um, and seeing the person as a whole, uh, it's, it's incredibly difficult to provide, you know, adequate, um, adequate and above and beyond support. And I, you know, I'm not going to say that, like, you know, as you've said, you know, workforce participation obviously can improve life life outcomes for people with a disability. Um, but again, as we've mentioned, like if workplaces continue to con- discriminate, um, fail to provide extended support or training or funding or remain inaccessible, this makes it an incredibly unsafe workplace. And, you know, I know we've mentioned some barriers before, but do you see that there are some barriers that keep coming up that um, – avoid or, or stop people from maintaining fair, safe and livable um, spaces? Well, absolutely. You know, there is a stigma against people with an intellectual disability that even for other people with disability, they'll say things like, don't treat me like I've got an intellectual disability. You know, it really, even in the hierarchy of disability, it's right down the bottom. Um, and so the other... Th- Sorry, the other thing that you touch on there, so it's not quite the answer to your question, is about support for decision, is support for decision making because the NDIS is a market. And yesterday you heard the, at the Disability Royal Commission, National Disability Services, the peak body for the ADS, keep on saying it's a matter of choice. It's a matter of choice. Now, people with an intellectual disability, almost by definition, need support for decision making, not substitute decision making, not people making decisions for them mm-hmm. or in their best interest but support to make their own decisions. And what we see here is that everyone assumes that they know what's best for people and that they're not respecting and providing the supports for decision-making. In regard to the rest of it, you're absolutely right about unsafe conditions in terms of, you know, first of all, there's violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. And if we're going to talk about multi-million dollar businesses spruiking the fact that they're employing people with disability but only paying them $2.50 an hour... I don't really know how we can get away from a, a, a definition of exploitation there. But when you talk about um, everything else, it's yes, can I have job security if, you know, if I am not properly supported at work? You know, like the chances of something going wrong is really high. And so people with intellectual disability do need ongoing support in the workplace. doesn't mean they need 24/7, someone with them 24-7, but they do need people to check in on them quite regularly because change is harder to manage if you need support for decision-making. So, um, you know, there's just... There is a big systemic reform and everyone is correct to say it's complex because it's the way that some big systems interface with each other that causes a lot of these problems. So it is a big, thorny problem, but underneath it, there's the fact that people with intellectual disability are not valued and are seen as second-class citizens and... um, and less important. Yep. And that's definitely not um, an attitude that should continue to prevail. And it's sad to see and know that uh, that happens within the disability community. But obviously, that happens in lots of different communities. I feel like also what's important to mention, I feel like what a lot of the work that Inclusion Australia do is so important is knowing that like, even the NDIS and the NDIA um, 
a lot of the staff who do identify as having a disability, a majority of them have, you know, they started off with um, either when the NDIS was created and also the NDIA, I think, I believe in like 2016 from memory, um, a lot of that staff had like physical and sensory disabilities. So if you don't have people um, or a representative of people with intellectual disabilities with variations in class and gender um, and race, like how do we expect better decision-making to come forward? So I think I was also going to ask, how do you think better advocacy and policy um, changes can actually happen where it is representative of people with intellectual disabilities as well as, you know, different um, intersecting struggles? Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. We've had a few conversations. You know, the NDIS itself is made up of about 60% of people with cognitive disability. So your three big cognitive disabilities are intellectual disability, autism and acquired brain injury. Mm-hmm. And yet, you're absolutely right. When when you look at the positions available for people with disability, they're mainly for people with um, physical and sensory disability. So therefore, people are just not familiar. You know, you think that you get policy developed without a deep understanding of what a cognitive disability might be might look like or how what supports people might need. So we need more people at work is what we need. We need people at work in all the, at, at DSS where the policy is made at the NDIA and in all of the regular workshops all the way from your you know your local footy club right the way through to the big multinationals. Um, because once people the, their research shows that attitudes change when you have personal connection. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is increase all the personal. Um, and in the meantime, organisations like us are employing people with intellectual disability, training them as self-advocates. And you did see at the Royal Commission that a number of people with intellectual disability spoke for themselves and spoke about how they were scared to ask for more money or better jobs, but they did speak for themselves. And even for the Royal Commission, that's progress because their earlier hearings didn't have so many people with intellectual disability speaking so, you know, having people speak for themselves is the most important. Yep, absolutely. And understanding empowerment and self-determination um, and knowing that there needs to be support in decision-making um, and that looks very different for everybody else as well. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining us here today, Catherine. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we um, wrap up? <laughs> no, thanks very much for having me on. I've appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much. Have a good day. And that was a discussion with Catherine McAlpine, who's the CEO of Inclusion Australia, which is the peak national organization of people with an intellectual disability and their families. And Catherine joined Inez today to speak about the labor exploitation of people with disability and the Disability Royal Commission. And I just can't encourage people enough to go have a look and keep track of the social media coverage that Inclusion Australia, so that's at Inclusion Oz on Twitter, has been providing about the ongoing Disability Royal Commission hearings and also looking up some of those news articles that kind of humanize these concerns and uh, speak to people who have experienced this awful labor exploitation where, um, you know, as discussed in the interview, people are working for less than $2.50 a day and being exploited because they have a disability. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. And now we are going to go to a quick track just to get you grooving in the morning. So it's called Big Girls by Pricey.
Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Hi, Hi. we're from Braybrook College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. It's almost summer, and I can't wait for the Sporting Record Summer Series. We're able to stretch our legs with four one-hour episodes starting on Thursday the 22nd of December at the normal time of 4pm. We have some very interesting guests lined up for you, so don't miss it. Every Thursday at 4pm here on 855 3CR.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast Summer Programming. During the year, we heard from so many incredible voices. Tune in to hear our top picks from 2022. Join us on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. And now we are joined by Elise Almond, a lawyer at Villamanta Disability Rights Legal Service, which is a statewide service that represents disabled people. This includes providing assistance with NDIS appeals to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Elise. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. Well, thanks so much for joining us here today. Um, no worries. Yeah, so... I just want to uh, start off by saying that uh, I know that a lot of disability advocates and legal services have been saying there is a large spike in the number of NDIS participants um, who have actually had their funding slashed in recent months and many have taken their cases to the tribunal. And I know The Guardian reported there has been actually a 400% increase in appeals that are actually going to the tribunal. So would you mind speaking on maybe why NDIS participants actually appeal to the tribunal and why do you think there's been such an increase in appeals recently? Yeah, no problem. So how it works is essentially an NDIS plan is reviewed every 12 months, six months, two years, whatever the plan period is. Uh, when it expires, when it's time to be reviewed, the planner looks at the plan, speaks with the participant, looks at all the services in the plan and makes a decision about what is going to be in the next plan. Mm-hmm. If the plan comes back and the participant's like, I used to have 20 hours of OT, now I've got two, this isn't right, they can then ask the NDIA to have a look at the plan. So internally review the plan. Hopefully they'll get the result they want through that process. If not, the next step is then externally reviewing to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, the AAT, which is an external body that has jurisdiction to overturn any decisions. So the appeals of the AAT can be about the supports in the plan or it can then about access to the scheme in itself. So if you've applied to get NDIS supports and they say, no, you don't meet their disability criteria, you can appeal that decision as well. Um, There's a lot of different theories going around about why there has been such an increase. Um, We've certainly felt it on the ground for sure. Um, There's been some people saying that they believe there has been a a direct... um, instruction within the NDIA to cut plans as much as possible. The NDIA have strongly denied this. Um, But you could also say that COVID has played a part. Um, It has made it difficult because when you get to the planning stage, you look at the supports and the planner will say, okay, we've had 20 hours of OT in your plan. You haven't used any of it. Therefore, surely you don't need it. So let's cut the OT where as we all know, during lockdown, you couldn't go out. You couldn't go out to therapies that were deemed non-essential. You couldn't go out with your support worker to all these places. So supports that may very well be 100% essential to these participants simply couldn't be used, so therefore were cut and, and no longer available now that we are out of lockdown and these people are stuck without their therapies and without their support workers to take them out of the house. So that has certainly caused issues for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, a lot of the 
current rhetoric <laughs> in societies. We've made society more accessible with remote learning, and I guess part of that maybe is true. But there's yeah, as you said, disabled people, people with a disability, have had like a lot of their services cut off, um, and have been really impacted by the ongoing lockdowns and you know having to self lockdown as well and. I feel like it's a bit of a contradiction during this time to be like, everything's better now, when really it's maybe also gotten <laughs> a bit worse. And I know yeah. um, in the recent ABC article in April, uh, one case actually at Villabanta where someone had had their funding cut by 93% without any warning. And also from what I've read is that, you know, the tribunal appeals now take four to five months to be heard when they used to take around six to eight weeks. And on top of that, people who the tribunal have actually ruled in favour of still did not have their revised plan months later. So I guess what effects are you seeing on participants who are experiencing, you know, this horrendously poor communication and exaggerated wait times? Mm. Well, yeah, all of that is true. Um, we're, we're seeing very, very distressed people, unfortunately. We're getting yeah. calls with people who are, are sobbing, essentially. I don't know what I can do. I need these supports in my plan yeah. now. I can't wait months and months and months. And the wait times have completely blown out with the number of applications. It used to be you make your application to the AAT. Yeah, in about six weeks, you, you might have your first case conference. Now it is four or five months, and that's only the first case conference. There can be multiple case conferences, months in between. Um, you can be at the AAT for two years without getting a result, which is, of course, very distressing. Any extra delay is distressing. Yeah. Going through the process itself is not a pleasant thing for anybody to be a part of. And one of the consequences of these delays is that say you go to your planning meeting you've got all your support or well, you've got all your reports supporting say from your OT supporting that you need an increase in hours or you need to stay the same hours whatever that may be you go through the internal review you go to the AAT you get there and the MDIA now say well this report's nine months old so we need a whole brand new report because it doesn't show reflect your current needs and you think well it's not my fault that these delays have taken so long that the report is now old. So then you're seeing participants having to use more of their NDIS funding to pay for extra reports and that funding for reports is then taken away from the funding from the actual therapy that they need. So there's a lot of ways that um, people are losing essentially with having to go through this process. Yeah, I didn't realise that um, if like to go to these meetings and do these reports that it actually is from, is that from your NDIS funding as well? Yes, absolutely. There is a figure that the therapists usually put in for report writing. They have to give um, updated reports. That's just a part of the NDIS um, to allow them to consider, go keep reviewing yeah. the participants' needs. Um, but yeah, anything additional has to come out of their plan. Yeah, I guess there's also like how do you regulate how much that is and if that's fair or, uh, yeah, I feel like it, it puts people in a really vulnerable decision. And I know that a lot of the time um, everything is promised about, you know, choice and control, choice and control. But if people uh, don't have the the tools or the support to actually make those decisions or inform themselves or, you know, have support, because a lot of um, 
a lot of people do rely on each other and everything is not also about autonomy and I feel like um, being able to <laughs> um, get support from each other about you know what is actually happening I feel like sorry I feel like <laughs> maybe I'm losing my train of thought but mm-hmm. I feel like it's important to you know not um, yeah not remain isolated as well yeah absolutely that's very important and especially after we've gone through um this very low lockdown um where a lot of people did feel very isolated throughout that period um it's important that everyone does feel like they're a part of society and that they are supported to be a valuable and respected part of society yeah absolutely um and i also know uh finally love uh going back to like the NDIA and the NDIA uh, is the agency that's actually tasked with rolling out the NDIS. Um, they've actually spent, I think, upwards of twenty-two million Donald, Donalds McDonalds, <laughs> twenty-two million dollars um, on external legal costs, uh, which is ridiculous. When funding has been cut for thousands of participants, and additionally, while the NDIA was spending so much money on law firm fees fighting all of these lawsuits. Um, community law centres, I'm sure, as you can attest to, say they are at capacity and they're struggling to take on new clients. Um, <laughs> how do you think that services such as Willamette have been affected during this time? Yeah, it's been really, really hard. We've had to completely close our books for a number of months now. Wow. And it's it's awful. People who are in our highest priority group that any other time would be an automatic, yes, we have to help this person. We're just having to turn away. And these are people with intellectual disabilities that have no informal support, so no family, no friends, and they're completely overwhelmed by the process. They don't, they have no idea what they're meant to do if they get a big long email from the NDAA's corporate lawyer. But we're just having to say, we simply can't do it, which is heartbreaking. It's awful for everybody. Yeah. And we're certainly not alone. The bulk of the AAT appeal assistance work is done by advocates in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have um, meetings to discuss updates, any tips, any issues we're all having. And everyone has been saying the same thing for months that they're just at capacity. And it's really, really hard. And even, say, that the lucky participants that we can help, that we do have capacity, that they call us at the right times where we are able to take it on, even we are completely, um, I, I guess, what's the word? Um, we, we're up against, if we go to hearing, it'll be one Villamanta lawyer and say, 11 people from the NDIA wow. representing or assisting their client. So even the lucky ones that do have formal assistance are still completely outgunned. And that's not to say that we don't get great results and are successful. Yep. It's just really, really hard. Um, and we certainly do see that the number <laughs> that the NDIA is spending on legal fees is frankly ridiculous and you might be fighting over, say, $1,000 all up and the matter will go for, as I said, two years paying the biggest legal fees in Australia, having barristers go to hearing for their NDIA. It, it simply does not make sense if they're coming at it from a cost viewpoint. Yeah. I feel like that's really overwhelming for legal centres as well. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of 
growing focus around is the NDIS sustainable? Um, is it growing faster than expected? And like, I know the roots of it is like a social insurance scheme, but to base it on like insurance principles, investment principles, neoliberal principles, as opposed to understanding that these are this is a lifelong support that people need, and you shouldn't be fighting with the organization that is supposed to be tasked with rolling this out. Um, and yeah, I, it, it, it is really heartbreaking to, to hear that. And I guess also with the notion of like the NDIS being sustainable, and I, I know recently it's also been a big election issue. Um, I know that a spokesperson for the NDIS minister, Linda Reynolds, said that the increase in AAT applicants reflected a combination of more participants and the scheme maturing. Um, but I, I guess I also want to ask, how do you think that we can actually defend the NDIS, as I've said, like not just as like this neoliberal insurance scheme or a blow to the budget, as people have been saying, but as a vital support to participants? Mm. Well, I think there are two different aspects um, when it comes to the NDIS. That you can... One is obviously you can view the NDIS in human rights perspective and these are human beings in Australia um, and really the budget is a matter of prioritising where the money should go. So if if you're viewing NDIS um, as a higher priority because you believe, well, people should have the right to um, access essential therapies, they should have the right to have a wheelchair to be able to leave their home or to be able to have a support worker to come in and help them get dressed, help them cook, so they don't just waste away in their homes, Mm -hmm. that in itself you would think that would be a high priority and the government would find the money money to fully fund it. But on the other side of things, NDIS is actually big business in and of itself. There's heaps of support providers, there's heaps of support workers out there Mm -hmm. who are contributing to the economy. During COVID, NDIS actually had a really big role to play in the economy when so many um, businesses, services, people couldn't work. Those who were deemed essential services, so if you had someone with a severe physical disability or intellectual disability that they simply couldn't get out of bed without a support worker coming in or cooking them food, that business kept going all through lockdown. Without that, we would have struggled a lot more. So it's... It's not. It's just simply not correct to view the NDIS as just a handout. It is actually giving back to the Australian economy in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that um, people are getting the support they need, not just to be, you know, um, I don't know, <laughs> like workers or get back into education or like it's it's completely fair if people want those things. But it's just about knowing that people are allowed to exist <laughs> and they're allowed to be supported in mm. whatever goals that they they have and they don't need to, um, I guess, be little <laughs> capitalist robots in order to be important members of society. Because I think they are just in the notion of them existing and it is a society that disables and, um, yeah, I think that's it, it's really disappointing that the tribunal process has taken this mm-hmm. long. People are on two years, people... Uh, I'm sure have experienced a lot of loss during that time. Um, but I, yeah, I just wanted mm. to thank, you know, thank you for coming on the show today and all the work that uh, Villa Manta is doing. And I'm sure that you're probably overwhelmed. So I know that, uh, hope you get some rest. Well, you have a good day. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Perfect. Thank you. No worries. Bye. Bye.
You've just heard an interview with Elise Almond, who is a lawyer at Villamanta Disability Service, and they spoke about the large spike in participants taking their cases to the AAT. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. And now we're going to another song, uh, Ezina by B.Y.'s Sampa the Great and Milan Ring. Uh, political. Said I'm looking for the army. To be one that woke Said I'm coming home to. To be once before me. Uh, looking for the army. To be one that woke Said I'm looking for the army. So I'm not walking. Said I'm coming home to you. Yeah. Looking for the. I know it's been a long minute. I'm alright though. Reminiscing about your faces in the night though. Feel your spirit, so I know you've always been close. Finally you understand the reason that you had to go. Tell a friend, tell a fan, say I'm coming. I was lost, now I'm found with some money. Got my flag, and I wouldn't try for nothing. Back now, so I know they're gonna love it. Hey. Oh yeah, what's up? Let me get it moving. We gon' come on, show y'all how to do it. Big up, say why? Family be the truest. Hermes with a heartbeat, got me sticking to him. Like a beat, yeah, I feel it in my chest. Pound one, got me right, so I swing to the left. About time I arrive, but I come bearing this. Break bread with my brother, show love to my sister. For the army.
have just heard <laughs> so we had to catch my breath there for a second uh we the past two songs were azina uh by serpa the great and milan ring and that was milkamana by king stingray Rock stars. What up, this G1? This DJ Illinois. And together we are Rebel, Rebel Diaz. And whenever we are here, we listen to 855 AM, 3CRD Digital, 3CR.org.au. You already know what it is. Free Radical Radio, let's go. 3CR. The CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are.
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. We're going to hear now uh, an interview I did with Associate Professor Adam Bourne, who is the Acting Director of La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. And Adam caught up with me to discuss a recently released report that he co-authored for the Disability Royal Commission, which explores issues of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of LGBTQIA plus pe- people with a disability. So before we jump into that, listeners, please be advised that our discussion does include mention of quite devastating findings related to experiences of abuse, violence, and suicidality experienced by people with disability based on their gender or sexual orientation. So if you wish to speak with someone about any of the issues that are mentioned in this interview, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can also uh, contact the National Disability Abuse and Neglect Hotline on 1-800-880-052. And LGBTQIA plus listeners may also wish to contact QLife on 1-800-184-527. That's 1-800-184-527 between 3 p.m. and and midnight. Or you can visit qlife.org.au. So this is just a warning before we head into that interview, and we'll provide all of those resources as well after the interview, and uh, everything will be in our show notes. And if you don't wish to listen to this interview, you can join us back in approximately 20 minutes. So now we'll head into that interview with Adam Bourne. I think maybe we should start off by talking a bit about the two surveys that you drew on to develop the report. So these are the Private Lives 3 and Writing Themselves in 4 surveys, which were conducted in 2019. And I understand these were the largest ever surveys of LGBTQIA plus adults and young people in Australia, respectively. So considering that these informed the current report, what kinds of data were gathered and how did they feed into the report that you've produced for the Disability Royal Commission? Yeah, sure thing. So the, these two studies that you just mentioned are ones that we conduct on a semi-regular basis. We have done for a number of years and they're designed principally to take a snapshot at a moment in time about the lives and the experiences and the needs of LGBTQA plus people as one survey for adults and a separate survey for young people aged 14 to 21. So they ask about a whole range of different topics, um, things like uh, mental health experiences, uh, violence, harassment um, or, or abuse that someone can experience on the basis of their sexuality or gender identity, experiences of coming out, of feeling supported by family, by friends, by schoolmates, by teachers, if it's in the youth survey, um, experiences of drug and alcohol use, housing and homelessness, engaging with healthcare services. It's like a really wide range of things that we ask about that are tailored to the kind of age group. You know, if they're a young person, more questions around school and education-based experiences and adults, more questions about what their life is like in the workplace and engaging with different kinds of health services. We also ask questions that are a bit more affirming. We ask people to reflect on things that are making them feel good about themselves, uh, the, the, the kind of positive forces in their lives that are helping to shape better outcomes for them as well. So that's what the surveys were about. Um, the Disability Royal Commission approached us um, about 12 months ago. They were interested to see that we had responses from quite a large number of LGBTQA plus people with disability in our surveys, which we were very excited to see ourselves. And they asked us, could we do 
a kind of more deeper dive, a more in-depth exploration of what those data were for LGBTQ people with disability, um, and to try to unpack some of those experiences and pull together a lived experience advisory group to help us think through, well, what do they really mean? And what should we be doing differently or be doing more of in the future to help ensure that um, they are that they feel safe and affirmed um, and are leading healthy lives as best as we can possibly accomplish. That's that's what we've set out to do. And that's what we were reporting on um, in, in this most recent output. Can you take us through some of the report's key findings and perhaps the findings of most concern that you do identify in the report's conclusion? Because I feel like the report really lays out fairly starkly some of the intersections between ableism, disability discrimination and violence on the one hand, and then homophobia and transphobia on the other, and how LGBTQA plus people with disability are being subject to sort of compounded violences by virtue of, um, you know, holding these identities and experiences. Yes. Um, I mean, my gosh, there is so much to say from this report and there's so many intersecting findings and and some really harrowing findings as well. And I, and I, I do want to acknowledge that before talking through some of them. Um, some of the worst reported experiences of poor mental health and of suicide attempt or suicidal ideation, so thoughts of taking your own life, were observed among LGBTQA plus people with disability. If you look across all of the sections of the LGBTQ community um, in our surveys, those who were most impacted and were really having the hardest time were those um, queer people with disability. We saw really harrowing high, harrowingly high rates of um, suicidality in particular. Um, we saw that uh, almost one in six, so that's about 15% of young LGBTQA plus people with disability, um, reported attempting suicide within the last 12 months. And nearly 40% had attempted suicide at some point during their lives. Now, that is a an astonishingly high proportion. It's high among all parts of the LGBTQ community. Um, but it's higher still among LGBTQA plus people with disability. And it's, uh, these were really alarming. I don't think we've ever had data of this scale before to be able to understand quite the extent of, of mental ill health and, and kind of mental crisis, um, mental crises that we, that we observe within this particular, within these particular surveys. A very similar pattern of um, suicidal attempts uh, among people, among older, among LGBTQA plus adults, I should say, uh, as well. Um, outside of that, uh, and very much linked to that, were experiences of harassment or abuse. So quite a large proportion, more than half of LGBTQA plus young people um, with a disability reported experiencing verbal harassment due to their sexuality or their gender identity in the last 12 months. And that was quite a lot higher, again, than those people in queer young people in the survey um, who didn't have a disability. And similarly, uh, 41, nearly 42% of LGBTQA plus adults uh, also reporting that experience of verbal harassment or abuse. And a very large proportion also experiencing physical and sexual harassment or abuse. And these two experiences, mental health that I talked about first and harassment and abuse that I talked about second, are 
intricately interconnected. There's a lot of very robust data, including that we report on in this um, in this most recent output, that that links these two experiences together. We know that people who've experienced harassment or abuse on the basis of their gender identity or sexuality are anywhere between about two and five times more likely to have attempted suicide at some point in their lives. This is the principle, the most reliable, the most consistent predictor of poor mental health outcomes among queer people is how we're treated by others. And that is even worse, even worse for people living with disability. And that, as you alluded to in your question, is very much a consequence of the compounding impacts of um, of the stigma and the discrimination directed towards people with disability layered on top of um, the experience people, the discrimination or the abuse people experience as on the basis of their gender identity or sexuality. Yeah, it is just, you know, heartbreaking looking through these results and seeing how you know poor these kind of outcomes are for people uh, when they're actually reporting on their their will to to continue living in a world that is you know ableist homophobic transphobic and i think there's obviously so much that needs to change but before we get into that i was also hoping that you could provide a bit more detail on some of the specific concerns that you discussed in the report around young people with disability because I know that there are some particular age-related dimensions, such as uh, discussions about disclosure, support, and acceptance, and also around treatment in educational settings. Yeah, so this is one of those situations where it's fantastic that we see, um, you know, anywhere between 60 and 80% of LGBTQA plus young people with a disability feeling supported by their family or friends at the point at which they disclose their gender identity or sexuality. But that means still that there's, you know, anywhere between 20 and 40% of young people who aren't. And that's still a really, really high proportion. Uh, and what again compounds this problem is that many LGBTQA plus young people with disability don't have access to or easy access to LGBTIQ communities or LGBTIQ peers, the disability spaces that they're often um, they often find themselves within, don't necessarily um, have the expertise, the understanding, the knowledge around gender identity and sexuality. They don't necessarily know how to respond to um, questions that emerge around gender diversity or sexuality. Uh, if, they, if the young people are living in more regional or rural areas, the opportunities just to connect for social or cultural events as a queer young person with disability, again, is very much inhibited. So, I, I, again, you're just kind of seeing a, a, compound, uh, a compounding of all sorts of um, of all sorts of issues layering on top of one another. I guess it's also important to acknowledge the other side of this. It's not just about a lack of understanding of gender identity and sexuality in disabled spaces but it's a lack of understanding recognition and inclusion of people with disability within lgbtiq spaces as well both sides of this equation aren't doing uh, aren't doing well enough to meet the needs of this inter of this really important intersection in our community of course there are going to be some excellent examples out there i have absolutely no doubt about that and our job going forwards from this is to identify where those good example those examples of good practice exist what is it about those 
um, those settings, those queer settings, the disabled settings and spaces and services. What is it about those that is helping to ensure LGBTQA plus people with disability, young and old or young and adults, <laughs> um, feel safe, feel affirmed, feel supported, feel understood, feel included? Like what is it that's helping to 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 bring about those outcomes and how can we be doing more of that? Definitely. And I think with, uh, you know, the pandemic is still going, but I think the pandemic definitely brought to the fore some of those concerns about access and inclusion in a in a more tangible way for a lot of people that might not have considered it before. And there is a lot more discussion, and I really hope this is turning into action in queer spaces, thinking about how to improve access and inclusion uh, when it comes to, you know, members of our community that are disabled or immunocompromised. Um, so maybe this uh, leads us into some of the recommendations that uh, yourself and your co-authors made. So what are some of the main things that need to change at um, perhaps the level of government, uh, both state and federal, and then within the community sector in terms of service provision? And if you want to touch on this as well, um, just within the community more broadly. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so we, 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 in fact, articulate recommendations at really at those three levels. What can the government what can we thinking about at a structural or a policy level? Um, and in that, we talk about some of the things that perhaps the NDIS and NDIA could be doing to ensure they're thinking about gender diversity and sexuality as they design, commission and fund services and interventions. So things like ensuring that, um, you know, people with disability uh, are receive support in accessing LGBTIQ spaces, if that's something that they wish to do that caseworkers have a sufficient understanding of, of of gender diversity and sexuality such that they can respond to questions and queries and um, requests for support um, or investment um uh, in the in the ways that they which in that the, 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 that they want to utilize their um their allocation their financial allocations um and thinking you know ensuring that lgbtiq strategies and policies where they exist recognize that this is not a homogenous group of people. LGBTIQ people are not all the same just because they're not cisgender and heterosexual. And like that doesn't always get recognized as much as it needs to uh, in policies and strategies. They, you know, we talk a lot about intersectionality here in Victoria, um, and that's fantastic. It doesn't necessarily always translate into how, um, uh, you know, organizational policies um, are designed and delivered. I do want to give a big shout out for the Victorian whole of government LGBTIQ strategy, which does have a really, really significant intersectional lens to it. I think it's a really good example of how we can be doing this well. And I think it's a, it's, um, a kind of a, a, a an indicator of how other states and territories could be adopting a similar approach when they're thinking about similar strategies and action plans going forwards. I guess the second level, as you were talking about there, is service design and delivery, which I was alluding to a moment ago. It's about both sides of the equation in the disability services and the LGBTIQ services, thinking about how are we meeting the needs of these communities to best effect. Um, and, you know, we've gotten very, we've gotten better over the years at thinking about certain types of disability. So often we have a tendency of thinking about um, physical access to a location. Is there a, um, is there a lift? Is there ramp entry? Absolutely essential. Really, really important that we're doing that. There is a lot of diversity in disability. 
We need to be, you know, we could be thinking about sensory disabilities, intellectual disabilities, neurodiversities, and they require nuanced and quite specific ways of working to help support people in those circumstances. They're not rocket science. It doesn't necessarily require a huge investment of time or resources. Um, they just require some thinking in many respects about some forethought and demonstrating to people with disability that we've thought about you. We recognize that you might be a part of our client group and we want to make sure that you feel supported and affirmed. And then, as you say, the kind of third level is about, is about the communities in which all people of all ability should be able to step into any social event, cultural event, um, in any kind of queer space, in any space, and feel included and feel safe and feel able to um, to express themselves in, in whichever way they feel um, is most appropriate. And, you know, these data particularly those around harassment and abuse and feelings of exclusion would suggest that we're a long way from that. Um, it really does. It really does. You know, there's a lot of LGBTQA plus people with disability saying that they don't feel safe within LGBTQ spaces. They don't feel supported. They feel excluded from a range of activities and events. They don't necessarily feel included um, or understood within the disability communities either. So they're falling through this gap in between the two of them. And that isn't that isn't okay. Um, and that requires a lot of thinking um, and a lot of collective efforts to try to, to try to resolve. Totally. And I think it's a, a good message to take forward to uh, International Day of People with Disability this Saturday uh, to keep front of mind um, so that, you know, there's this constant reminder that everyone is responsible for making these kinds of cultural changes. It can't just be up to, you know, one part of the community. Uh, so finally, where can people read the report and find out uh, about more about both the Disability Royal Commission and also your own work? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm at the Australian Research Centre for Sex, Health and Society. So if you Googled ARCSHS, ARCSHS, um, you'll find our webpage pretty quickly. Uh, and on there, you'll see a link. It's on the front page. It'll be there for quite a few months, I imagine, to this particular report. Also on the page, um, there's an easy read version of the report. Um, there's a there's a video that's produced by the Disability Royal Commission that talks through the report in small chunks and has a sign language interpretation of it. We've also produced a series of videos um with lgbtqa plus people with disability there are four videos in total and um, people with different diverse kinds of disability where they talk about their experiences they talk about what's feeling uh, like the challenges that they've experienced and it also talks about the things that are helping them feel safe and affirmed within their communities they're really lovely they're really quite inspiring it's really worth they're only short like between you know six or seven minutes most of them they're really worth having a watch if you have the time because there's a lot of good ideas in there to prompt your thinking about what you as an individual or you as an organization can be doing to be more attentive to the needs um, of this community yeah, I think um, really the message there is listen to disabled folks about um, about what they need, not just in uh, queer spaces, but altogether. Um, but I, I really appreciate the fact that there are a variety of uh, different ways that people in, can engage with the results of the report and that, that center the voices of people with disabilities. So, look, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard an interview with Associate Professor Adam Bourne, who's the acting director of La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society, who spoke about a recently released report that he co-authored for the Disability Royal Commission exploring issues of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of LGBTQIA plus people with disability. And once again, this discussion did include some distressing themes. And if you need to speak with anyone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. If you're at risk of domestic, family, or sexual violence, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. And LGBTQI plus listeners may also wish to contact QLife on 1-800-184-527 between 3 p.m. and midnight or visit qlife.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast Summer Programming. Over summer, we'll be joining you with Radical Radio, including highlights from our news coverage across all of our breakfast shows. For summer grid details, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. And you can also listen back to our podcast by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash breakfast. And I'm joined now by Elle Gibbs, award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues to discuss some of the systemic issues with disability employment services and to break down current government approaches to disability employment in the lead up to the September Jobs and Skills Summit. Elle, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Priya. No worries at all. It is uh, great to be speaking with you again. I love that um, I, you know, I'm able to reach out to you whenever I need to um, have a chat and figure out exactly what's going on in this space because you provide such excellent analysis. That's right. Follow L Gibbs on Patreon. Um, but yeah, I thought we might start off with a discussion about the state of, the dis- of, of disability employment services, given the government's recent announcement that 52 of the 104 DES providers will be having their services reduced or discontinued as of this past Sunday, with eight of these closing completely. And this occurred off um, a performance assessment for disability management services and employment support services. So this is obviously a big change. I'm wondering what some of the issues were that were identified in this performance assessment. Yes, it's a little bit. So in 2018, there were a big review of DES providers because they, funnily enough, weren't working and weren't getting people with disability into work. So there's a huge review, lots of changes happened. Supposedly, there was to be this more individualised support service. Everything was going to be fantastic. A bunch of disabled people and disability organisations strongly dissented at the time and said, these reforms are terrible and they're not going to work particularly for people with significant support needs, so people with intellectual disability, autistic people, um, yeah. So so we come to last year and Luke uh, Henry Gomez from The Guardian, uh, through a Freedom of Information, found a mid-review document done by Boston Consulting Group that found, surprise, surprise, it was all a disaster. And they found that um, the likelihood of someone getting work had declined after the reforms by up to 14%, and the cost had gone up 
uh, from $27,000 to $38,000 in two years. So the reforms didn't work to get disabled people into work, but they did work in terms of increased profits for the providers. So the new government's come in. There's been this big process the last year about reform, lots of submissions. Everyone's been talking about you know, what needs to be done. The providers have pushed back really hard on the reforms and said, oh, no, we've got to take longer. We've got to you know, have more time. So the new government's come in and said, right, we're going to do this shiny thing. We'll cut down eight providers, get rid of them, cut down a few more. But they haven't released the details on exactly what parts of this big change they're going to do. And I suspect they're going to push out any real changes uh, that might actually help disabled people uh, for much longer. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is also just like one of those classic examples of um, various governments saying, look, we've poured a heap of money into this. Why isn't it working? The problem must be the people that are accessing the services rather than the whole systemic service architecture itself. And now uh, coming in and making these these cuts to servicing, it really, you know, it seems fairly haphazard. I'm not sure if, if that um, if that's the right term for it, but um, to just sort of, you know, come in and say, here's a, here's a simple fix, but without, you know, providing a more comprehensive outline of what's going to happen or, you know, listening to disabled people uh, when they talk about a lot of the longer standing issues and structural issues around employment access. So, could you speak to some of the effects that these closures might have and perhaps link this into how issues with DES fit within this context of a fundamentally dysfunctional job search or employment search provider model and social security system? Because we know that um, obviously this this profit skimming that's been happening with with DES providers is, is something that happens across the system as well. Yeah. And, you know, just before I start on that, just to be really clear about you know, some of the really big for-profit providers like APM, for example, didn't get touched in any of these changes, mm. so no matter their outcomes. So, yeah, so there's 15,000 disabled people who are on the books of these services that have been closed or changed, and they have to find another provider. And the government has said they'll get a text message, um, but there really does need to be much better support for them in terms of transitioning because of the whole mutual obligation stuff. Mutual obligations have been suspended for two months, which I think gives the government saying, Oh, we recognise that we're not doing this very well and it might take a while for people to find a new provider. Um, but look, the whole punitive model of these providers is actually about enforcing so-called mutual obligations, so, which are nothing mutual about them at all. It's all about um, forcing people into arbitrary and ineffective programs, um, usually run by the same DES providers that are running the enforcement um, to actually get their meagre income support. So, I mean, that's what the whole privatised job model is all about for both people on JobSeeker but also on other payments. And, you know, keeping in mind that half the people who are on JobSeeker payment are disabled people. So, you know, this is all about a privatised enforcement model to make people, you know, do work for the dole, to do training programs that benefit the DES providers, um, all of that kind of stuff. So... They don't provide people with work and they don't provide people with long-term support, particularly um, groups of people who are significantly excluded from the labour market. So I've done a bit of work around people with intellectual disability. Less than, I think it was 7 or 8% of people who use DES are people with intellectual disability. And apart from literally one provider, one DES provider, 
everybody else gets absolutely terrible outcomes and can't get people jobs, don't support people into work and don't use the evidence to um, actually make sure that people can succeed in the labour market. So it's a really terrible situation when you've got one provider who can do the job in the whole of Australia mm-hmm. and the rest are just like, nah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, as you can hear, I'm pretty cranky about it because we keep repeating this same cycle. You know, we do a reform, the providers get everything that they want and disabled people are listened to. The government goes, right, fantastic. A couple of years into the reform, whoops, it doesn't work. Exactly what disabled people said would happen has happened. We'll do another round of reform, rinse and repeat. Are you telling me that repeated inquiries are not actually the way to go with this <laughs> and that perhaps we have all of the information that we already need from disabled people? Um, I mean, it it really... These systemic issues that you've touched on also obviously intersect with, you know, just like a widespread culture of ableism in workplace environments. So beyond just the 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 providers and, um, you know, what it means to access uh, DES services, uh, there is also the these issues uh, within a culture that devalues disabled people that also doesn't recognize that some people uh you know, won't fit into these, uh, the options of employment that are available to them and that, um, you know, people's lives need to be valued and people need a livable income, regardless of whatever kind of quote unquote contribution they can be seen to to make. Um, But yeah, I'm wondering, with all of that in mind, could you tell us a bit about the government choosing to silo disabled people's concerns and voices away from the Jobs and Skills Summit, which is going to be held uh, on the 1st and 2nd of September in Parliament House? Uh, because I, I believe uh, Minister Shorten is going to be organizing a, a separate meeting in the lead up to this event. But surely disability should be an integrated consideration rather than thought about separately. Yeah, now be one or two disabled people at the main job summit, which is due to a lot of disabled people jumping up and down mm-hmm. going, hello. And um, so, yeah, Shorten held a jobs and skills forum, as he called it, last week. And it was one of about 50 or so different roundtables that are happening across a range of industries. But it was the only one that included disabled people. So you've got all of these other sectors and industries meeting and talking. But we're, we're excluded, of course. So there was a forum that was held and it did hear from a range of disabled people, including people with intellectual disability, which is fantastic. And, you know, again, came up with ideas, which is really good uh, to bring to the main job summit. But I think the lack of ideas isn't the problem. You know, we are 15% of the working age population and yet um, half of us still live in poverty. And, you know, those kind of statistics about us being part of the workforce haven't changed for 30 years. So whatever we've been doing for 30 years isn't working. So um, I think what we actually need is the proposals on the table that use the levers of government to actually affect change. So one of the things um, <laughs> for their sins, the Disability Employment Australia uh, Conference, the Disability Employment Australia is like the peak body for not-for-profit DES providers, mm-hmm. and they asked me to come and talk at their conference, which, you know, as the MC said, went down like a cold shower. Um, and I said that all, de- all everyone who gets a dollar from the government uh, to deliver something for disability should have a mandatory quota of 15% employment mm-hmm. at every level of, of disabled people. Now, it caused a degree of controversy because the, all of these providers, there were only a few who could actually answer that they employed disabled people in their organisations. So you've got organisations delivering 
billions of dollars of disability services, and yet we don't get a single dollar of that. So that's a big lever the government could pull right now and at the job summit to actually affect change and get more of us actually into work and just start to change the culture of these organisations. Yeah, and I mean, it's really about disrupting that power dynamic as well, just fundamentally within these organisations, uh, you know, rather than saying, uh, you know, it's it's run by non-disabled people, we employ non-disabled people, and we're providing services for disabled people. It's really about making sure that, you know, you're, you're an employment services provider, how can you not internally be providing employment for disabled people and have disabled people leading the conversations within your organisation. Yeah, 100%. And I think that kind of stuff, you know, 15% is a kind of minimum amount. Like, I've been the only disabled person in a room a number of times, and it's really not fun when you're the only person raising these things. You're the only person with the lived expertise of talking about discrimination and experiencing discrimination, you know, and yet there's a whole bunch of non-disabled people, you know, talking about disability as though they really understand. And, you know, but having, um, you know, I mean, up to 50% of rooms talking about disability should be disabled people Mm -hmm. because it really does, as you say, change the power dynamic and it shifts it from, you know, non-disabled expertise, so-called expertise, telling us poor disabled people what we need to do and actually reflects that we know the answers. Yeah, of course. And I mean, speaking on that, you recently wrote about government's approach to employment for disabled people and really gestured to that cynicism of repeated inquiries, further research, that kind of thing, rather than acting on what disabled people have actually said they want and need for a very long time. So what are some of the most pressing issues, apart from what you've mentioned about employment quotas, that need to be addressed by the Albanese government going forward to actually create some tangible change? Yeah. Look, there's a couple of really, and they're not easy, but there are some things the government could actually do. What I said about the 15% um, of employment quotas, they could fix the Disability Discrimination Act, um, they could end mutual obligations and this punitive job agency regime, um, change the taper rates and earning thresholds for income support so people can keep more of what they earn, um, make employers have to provide accommodations and adjustments at work and make that, yeah, make that happen. Um, commit to paying disabled workers at least the minimum wage, including those who work in shelter workshops, mm-hmm. um, creating more jobs for people with intellectual disability specifically because uh, they are so often left out when we talk about employment. Um, and employ disabled people in the government departments that actually make policy about mm-hmm. us. So, you know, give these things some teeth, um, give the disability strategy some teeth and some resources to make it bite. You know, so often we make these strategies and then there's no enforcement, there's no implementation, there's no um, actual resources behind it to make it happen. Yeah, and by setting uh, by setting really vague targets or ambiguous targets, then, it, you know, you can really shape any result to fit sort of the broad rubric of uh, um, of success, um, which, you know, I think really needs to change because you need to be able to have these concrete goals and to be able to tick those off rather than to say, look, we made a gesture towards potentially looking into this a bit more and now we've started putting some thought into maybe looking into it and so that counts as progress rather than actually tangibly changing things on the ground. Um, But also, like you said, not everybody can work mm -hmm. and should work. So I'm really... I want to make sure that, you know, as part of this conversation that we make sure that income support 
you know, job seeker disability support pension is a livable amount and that people aren't expected to live in absolute poverty uh, because they can't get into the like, they can't work. So um, I've had long periods of time where I can't work and I was, you know, relying on income support. And I think it's really important that that is an equal part of this conversation. Yeah, Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, with that comes uh, really cracking down on uh, rolling back the the prohibitive sort of requirements for for access for the disability support pension as well because you know as you did mention um, so many people that are currently on the job seeker payment are disabled but you know don't meet that uh, ridiculous threshold for access um, so finally where can listeners find out more about some of the issues that we've been discussing keep up to date with your own writing and you know support pushes for change in this space yeah so. Um if you're interested in my stuff, um, it's on my website, lgibbs.com.au, and I have a Patreon as well. Um, I had an article out yesterday in The Guardian, which was nice, uh, talking about something completely different than that employment. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think there's uh, Pro Bono News is doing a good job of covering some of these things from uh, the perspective of disabled people. Um, but, yes, there's a lot of providers in the and businesses bleating in the news that they can't possibly employ us, but uh, we know that that is absolute garbage. <laughs> I was going to use another word. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I think, um, you know, your your website, but also your social media is, has also been like a fantastic roundup of a lot of these concerns. Um, and I think, you know, this is also an example of just listening to disabled people and <laughs> listening to the analysis that is being put out and just amplifying that and, and putting, uh, you know, putting our support behind that, you know, for yeah. non-disabled people listening as well. But- one that is doing great work around this stuff and is um, part of these conversations and processes. So give them a follow on socials. Um, and I'm at Blunt Shovel. Yes, excellent. And we'll be putting all of those links in our show notes. Look, Elle, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. I really appreciate your expertise in this area. Um, and also, you know, your your relentlessness in continuing to sound the alarm about complacency in this space because I can only imagine how grinding it is to have to say the same thing over and over again. (laughs) Thanks thanks for having me, Priya. Take care. And that was Elle Gibbs, an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues, who spoke with us about systemic issues with the disability employment services model and broke down some current government approaches to disability employment in the lead-up to the September Jobs and Skills Summit. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I'm going to play a new track for you. This one, I think, hopefully will wake you up a little bit. This is No Peace by Citizen K.
That was No Peace by Citizen K. What an absolute banger. Definitely, uh, definitely one to get you going. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 a.m. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. That's all we've got time for on today's Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Today's summer special featured a selection of interviews across 2022 about disability justice and the Disability Royal Commission. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and stream at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.